You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Stacy Mitchell is a co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. She's the author of the book Big Box Swindle. Uh, she is one of the nation's leading experts on monopolies, market consolidation. She has testified to Congress on the impacts of Amazon on the competitive marketplace, and she has been a guest a number of times on Strong Towns podcasts and webinars. I'm grateful that she is back with us today. Stacey, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Uh, it's so great to be back again. I'm such a huge fan of Strong Towns, so it's always like a thrill to be able to be on this podcast. That's very flattering. I'm likewise a fan of all the work that you do and all the work of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Can we go back before the pandemic in our minds? The work that you did had a certain urgency to it before the urgency hit us in, in regards to the fragility of small business, the growing power of Amazon, the big tech companies, of big boxes. I want to get into how this has changed and maybe become even more urgent, or we've kind of gotten into the end game in some ways. Could you set us up as to what the concerns were maybe last January, February in regards to the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. If I can, if we can all still remember pre-pandemic, um, we have seen this just acceleration of corporate consolidation across almost every industry where we have, you know, a handful of companies that have become incredibly dominant. And, you know, you can talk about Walmart's power in the food system. You know, we did a report last year, we found that there are over 40 metropolitan areas and, over 160 micropolitan areas. So, you know, smaller, but still pretty good sized communities where Walmart captures more than 50% of all grocery sales, some places more than 70, 80%. You know, so you have these various, you know, you can talk about the airlines and the cable companies. You can talk about Tyson Foods, uh, the domination of the meat packers. I mean, one sector after another where you have these just incredibly powerful companies. And on top of that, we now have these tech giants, which have a you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, which, you know, not only dominate industries, but have a different kind of monopoly power that's actually much more dangerous. So that has been going on. And there's growing evidence that that consolidation of corporate power is actually causing some of the worst structural problems in our economy, including the stagnation of wages and the fact that people can't earn a living seems to be connected to it the demise of small business. And we've seen small business just on a downward trajectory. We're losing lots and lots of businesses. That's been a trend that's been running for about 30 years, but it has accelerated over the last 10 years, over the last five years. When you look at what's happening with small businesses, a, a lot of the, and you really go and sort of explore and talk to business owners and look at what's going on within their particular industries, you know, what you find is just market power abuses. You find that they, it's not that they can't compete. In many cases, they're actually better. They're lower priced. They provide better service. They play these really important roles in their industries. They uh, are responsible for more innovation in many cases and so on. You know, by objective measures, they're actually better. And yet, 
they're disappearing. And a lot of the answer has to do with these powerful companies that are able to muscle them out or in various ways manipulate their supply or their prices or what have you and do so without encountering, you know, any intervention uh, on the part of uh, the folks who in government who are supposed to police market power. And then I guess the last thing I'll say is as those companies have gained power economically, they've also gained power politically. And so they've been able to use that power in a lot of ways to, you know, rig the system. You know, just as one of many examples, you know, Amazon has paid virtually no federal income taxes in recent years. You know, your neighborhood bookstore or toy store is paying an effective federal rate of about 25%. So tell me how in the world that makes any logical sense. So we hit this pandemic starting here in the U.S. in a big way with the shutdowns and stay-at-home orders in March of this past year. I remember because I was actually at, this is going to be a little bit bizarre, but I was at Disney World when the market was crashing. I was looking at my phone and watching the stock prices on Facebook and Amazon and Apple just crater and just the broad S&P collapse. And there was a part of me that said, okay, this is the logical outcome of having big consolidated kind of lumbering giants. They would be wiped out in something like this. And we would see this kind of flowering of small business companies. Like the small businesses are the ones that are going to be adaptable, are going to be flexible, are going to be... Fast forward to today, and my gut instinct couldn't have been more wrong. Mm -hmm. Talk about what has happened to the economic ecosystem since March and how it has changed. I feel like a lot of your fears have now been not just given voice, but like almost come to fruition in an inevitable sense. Can you talk about what has happened and uh, where we sit today in regards to like overall competitiveness in the marketplace? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of the trends have accelerated dramatically. You know, we have a handful of sort of winners, if you will, in the COVID economy and then a bunch of losers. On the one hand, you're right about the adaptability of small business. I mean, you know, we've watched and you've, I'm sure, seen in your own community and we've seen across the country, businesses adapt in extraordinary ways, um, like completely change their business model and their approach to what they're doing and have stepped up in in all sorts of ways to meet the needs of their communities uh, in this time. But they have faced a world in which two of the biggest obstacles, I guess I would say, are three. I mean, let me name three. One is that, you know, because we can't have physical contact, everything has gone to digital. And digital is a world that is controlled by a few gatekeepers who can levy exorbitant fees. So if you want to sell to people online, you largely have to sell on Amazon's platform. They're going to take a huge cut of your revenue, and that cut has been growing in recent years. If you can't take cash and you got to do everything by credit card, you're going to pay enormous fees to Visa and MasterCard, seven times what people pay, what, what merchants pay in Europe where those fees are regulated. If you need to use a delivery service because you're a restaurant, you know, Grubhub, Postmates, DoorDash, exorbitant fees, hidden charges, outright fraud in many cases. So as everything moved online, suddenly the fact that we've allowed the digital world to be controlled by these gatekeepers meant that small businesses um, were paying a hefty tax to those gatekeepers in order to reach their customers. So that was one big thing. Another big thing is uh, in, in many places, I don't know how true this might be in central Minnesota, 
but the what I would call the the real estate financial industry complex has been at odds with the needs of small businesses. That is, you know, in my city, I live in Portland, Maine. Um, there was a survey, over 90% of businesses haven't gotten a dime cut off their rent. Um, and a right. lot of that has to do with banks and real estate industry and out-of-state ownership and all this sort of thing. And then the third big thing is the policy response. You know, we had at the federal level, you know, we decided to open up a massive spigot of cash at the Federal Reserve for the largest companies while consigning small businesses to this rickety system of loans that they had to scramble for from banks didn't always work. A lot of them were left out and it was temporary. It came with a bunch of strings attached and that money's all long gone and the pandemic goes on. You know, not only did we fail to really provide the assistance that small businesses needed, but in the decisions we made around closures, which, you know, were the right decisions from a healthcare perspective, obviously, but, you know, lots of places, businesses were shut down for weeks and then have, or even if they're reopened, they have new restrictions on how many people they can let in and so on. You know, meanwhile, Amazon, Walmart allowed to stay open and not only allowed to stay open selling groceries and other essential items, you could go to Walmart at the height of the pandemic and buy a television if you wanted. You know, right. you could buy a book, but your local bookstore is shut down or, or severely restricted in what they can do. And so within the retail sector, you know, Walmart, Amazon have done extremely well during the pandemic. You know, lots of the sort of chains have also sort of fallen by the wayside and the independent businesses, despite, you know, doing really heroic things on the behalf of their communities are really struggling. Mm-hmm. To me, just mental images of the pandemic has been my biking to one of the local restaurants that was just struggling to hang on. And I know the owners and they're nice people and they have just had the most difficult time and having to go around a block of cars backed up at the Burger King drive-through. Mm. Um, and it just seemed to me like, you know, we've structurally built this thing to disadvantage the local business. And that even goes beyond what, you know, you just brought up. It's, it's almost like physically the way we built our environment has almost right. said, all right, if you're the Starbucks with a drive-through, my oldest kid can drive now. So she's like, can I drive to Starbucks with my friends? <laughs> That's a big deal now. But going to the local coffee shop is off the, off the menu. I mean, it's not part of the deal because they don't have that option. Your work is so good on this and I, you know, on the role of the built environment. And I, I think it's just incredibly, has everything, you know, it's, it's a huge part of, of whether you live in a place where independent businesses can succeed or not. It has to do with you know, how dependent are you on cars? How spread out are you? Like, what is the infrastructure of your place? And is it the kind of infrastructure that supports local entrepreneurs and like enables that kind of community environment or not? And of course, so much of what we've built is the car-oriented Starbucks, Walmart stuff. I mean, I think the question we have to, we, this whole experience should cause us to ask is, how is it that small businesses were so weak? I mean, this is, you know, admittedly more than just a stiff win, but, you know, in effect, they are being blown over in huge numbers. And the worst effects we haven't seen yet in terms of the closures, that's going to be in the next few months. Agreed. They're just being blown over by this. How is it that they were on such weak footing to start with, that this could be as disastrous as it was. And I think that points to these longer running problems and how, we, how we've how we set up our economy and the policies that, that govern it. 
one of the places where my thinking has evolved and largely because of your work is on Amazon. I know, and I might've expressed this to you early on in one of the times we spoke, how I almost looked at Amazon as like the enemy or my enemy uh, mm -hmm. is my friend. <laughs> Right. Uh, because, yeah, I, you Walmart. know, <laughs> yeah, I've been battling Walmart and I've been battling the, the big box phenomena and, and the idea that financially these are really bad for communities. I've been fighting that. And at the same time, there's this urbanist side of in my neighborhood, we've wiped out all the corner stores. We've wiped out all the neighborhood type of retail. We've wiped, it's all gone. And so the option is to get in my car and drive out to, to the big box store or have something delivered and I can live a neighborhood lifestyle. I'm like, I, I love Amazon because of, of this. I've started to really become aware of, and, and many thanks to your, to your work, of the damage that Amazon has done to startup entrepreneurs and small businesses. Can you talk about their role as gatekeeper? Because I, I feel like that is the thing now that has become maybe an ancillary issue that really should be front and center because it is affected the way anyone who wants to start something today has the capacity to do at any scale. They have to go through one of these gatekeepers, particularly Amazon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think to go back to what you kind of opened with about, you know, sort of the notion of having things delivered, that impulse is not wrong. You know, it's nice to be able to connect with independent businesses through online as well as in person and to have things brought to our doorsteps. And, you know, particularly if you live in a smaller place, you know, being able to order from a business in another location that, you know, has the kinds of things you're looking for that aren't maybe available in your town and, and so on. I mean, so that there's no, it's not the technology that's the, the issue. It's whether you have a, a single entity that totally dominates and controls that technology and uses that position of power to expand its own market share and dominance in other areas, or whether we actually have what the internet, you know, was meant to be or promised initially, which would be this wide open place where anyone with a good idea or a great business could succeed. And we could all be, you know, interconnecting, you know, before we allow these, these few gatekeepers to come along. You know, Amazon captures about 50% of all online shopping in the U.S. And the more important stat to understand their role is that about two-thirds of all Americans, when they want to buy something online, they start at Amazon. You know, a few years ago, they would start, you know, people would typically start like at a search engine, they'd go to Google and they'd type in, you know, dollhouse or running shoes and they would get a list of results that would include Amazon, but would include maybe their local toy store or a local sporting goods store, what have you. And they would choose among those, those options. Now, most people simply start right at Amazon. And so what that means is if you're a company that makes or sells anything um, and you want to reach consumers online, you have two options. You can either go your own way. Um, and you're basically hang, hanging your shingle out on a dirt road that has less and less traffic as the years go by, or you can sell on Amazon's platform. And if you sell on Amazon's platform, you are now uh, relying on this infrastructure to run your business that is controlled by your most ferocious competitor. And that competitor is competing with you on that very infrastructure. They control how much you have to pay to be there. And they write all the rules. So, you know, Amazon can get up one day and decide, oh, that thing that you're selling, we're not going to let you sell it anymore. 
oh, sorry, we've, we've canceled your account. I know it was your livelihood for your whole family. Tough luck. You can you know, send us an email into a system where you'll get an automated response endlessly, but there's no adjudication. Can I pause for a second? Yeah. I hear people say things like that. Mm-hmm. The way you said it, I think some people can interpret it as a theoretical kind of construct. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you have to go through Amazon, so they could do this or they could do that. You're full of examples of this actually happening where people, you know, one day have a, a business that is thriving and going in one direction. The next day, Amazon decides, you know, we have a product in the same realm mm-hmm. that we're interested in that we think we can do better. And all of a sudden, their business is wiped out through no competitive shift of their own, but this provider. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Because I, I want to make sure that people realize that you're not talking theoretically, you're talking about actual like the experience of people on these platforms. Yeah, that's right. And, and I'll say something about Amazon strategy first and then, and then give a few examples. So I mean, part of what Amazon has done by being the infrastructure, they have like a, a bird's eye view of everything that's happening. So they can see all of this activity online, what people are searching for, how long their mouse is hovering in different places, like what they're searching for and not finding. So they have all of this information and they know what all of these other companies are, are doing, what's selling well, what's their hot product. And they know a lot about their cost structure too. And so what that means is that Amazon can look out there and pick off lucrative products, popular products, and make its own versions or bring the same product into its own inventory or create its own private label version and decide to give itself top billing in the search results, decide to give itself what's known as the buy box, um, which we can talk about, but basically means to make itself the one who's going to get all the sales. Right. You know, some of the examples, you may know that the House Antitrust Subcommittee has been doing a 16-month investigation of big tech, and they had a hearing in July where they had all the CEOs. One of the things they did with Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, is that they played a recording of a company, I forget where they were, I think maybe Texas, but I might have that wrong, a textbook company. So a small family-owned business, and they built up a business selling textbooks to students. And one day woke up and Amazon had gated them, as it's kind of lingo is known, that they were no longer allowed to sell those titles. And lo and behold, Amazon was selling those titles itself. And suddenly their whole family's livelihood is gone and there's no recourse. There's no other platform that you can go to say, oh, I don't like the way you treated me. I'm going to go sell somewhere else because those platforms are all anemic and have no sales. There's no regulator that you can go to and say, I was wrongly treated. What are you going to do? You just lose your business. The Wall Street Journal, to give another example, that has done some really great reporting um, this year on this. And they, they documented product after product. One of them I remember was a, a car trunk organizer where they actually tracked this really popular version on their website and then created an Amazon brand one. And suddenly that's, you know, top of the search results and whatever company had discovered this great trunk organizer and had sort of built up a market for it, they were just, you know, wiped out. You know, that's one set of problems, the fees that they charge, which have gone up dramatically in the last few years. They've essentially compelled the small businesses on their platform to buy a lot of other goods and services for them that have enabled Amazon to build huge businesses in other areas. So one example is shipping and package delivery. They're now rivaling like UPS and FedEx and the size of their operations. And they've done that because they've said to the sellers on their platform, you know, if you want to succeed, if you want to have visibility on the platform, you better be buying your shipping service from us and not from UPS. There's just rampant market power abuse. 
so I know Amazon does this gatekeeping in terms of you get it advantageous if you use their shipping, if you use their... Remember back when they were doing HQ2, I remember you telling me that part of what they were doing, and this seemed horribly cynical at the time, and, and I was like, I got to get my mind wrapped around this, that part of what they were doing was market research. Essentially, show us your cards in all these communities. You know, who, who wants Amazon? Who's willing to pay the most? Show us under the hood of what's going on in your place. And that seemed deeply cynical. But yet, it's been borne out to be true. They've now circled back to a lot of these places and said, well, we know you're interested. Let's put a warehouse here. We know the deals that you can give. They also have done this in terms of the, their own venture capital arm. And I found that to be almost more insidious. Uh, I'm not sure why, the, you know, the, the governments are lining up to be suckers at the card table, but small businesses are, are not. Can you talk a little bit about what they've done with venture capital, how, yeah. how they've used basically what, what I think from an entrepreneurial mind would be looked at as a helping hand mm -hmm. to actually do quite the opposite in many cases? So we talked about the online website as a form of infrastructure, like a railroad that everyone has to ride. They have other pieces of infrastructure. And so one is AWS, their cloud services, which powers a huge share of the internet um, and lots of other companies rely on. And then an emerging one is voice. So, you know, the voice assistant is Alexa, which dominates the market. Their smart speakers account for about 70% of all smart speakers in the U.S. Alexa is by far and away the dominant voice interface and is being, you know, installed in tens of thousands of products, cars, dishwashers, all kinds of devices. And that, again, is another kind of piece of infrastructure, because if you're a company that makes something and you want to be able to interact with people, say you have a service that they might want to access online through voice music streaming or whatever it may be, or you make a dishwasher that you want them to be able to access via voice. So all these other companies now have to use Amazon's platform, which gives Amazon a bird's eye view on what they're doing. And it can go say, well, let's start a music streaming service, which they've now done, or let's uh, create a microwave, which they've now done. You know, so mining all of that data that they get from other companies to then advantage their own products and then give themselves sort of first billing on the platform. So one of the ways that they've, you know, become this dominant voice interface is, you know, we, we think of Amazon, we think, oh, well, they're, they're so big because they're so inventive. And, you know, yeah, there's some truth to that, but it's also true that they've, many of the technologies that we associate with Amazon, they've actually bought. You know, so Alexa, she has a backstory. She used to go by the name Evie and she was, you know, she was a native of uh, the UK. She was created by a company in England uh, and Amazon bought her. So that's the origins of Alexa, along with a bunch of other voice technology that they bought. And then as they've tried to dominate this voice market, one of the other things that they've done is they created something called the Alexa Fund, which is an, a venture capital firm, what you're referring to, and used that fund to go out and invest in all of these companies that were creating you know, voice and voice adjacent kind of technologies. And when they would make those investments, they would get a real look under the hood at how that technology worked, how the companies were thinking about it. And in some cases, they've then essentially stolen what it is that they learned. So one example is a company that um, had created a home intercom system, 
and Amazon, you know, um, months after investing and getting a look under the hood, uh, rolled out the same kind of features and, and interface within Alexa. They've done this repeatedly. Um, either they'll buy the company and incorporate it, or they'll just take their best ideas and incorporate them. Now, I think the pushback is, well, you know, no one's forcing them to work together. And they could bring a lawsuit if there was a patent or anything. Uh, and ultimately, this is good for consumers. Consumers benefit from having access to this technology and low prices and, and quick delivery and all this. It feels like as the pandemic has gone on that those assertions have started to ring even more hollow than they have in the past. Mm-hmm. Can you give voice to the counter argument to those just so we can have that assertion uh, out there. I, I know if I talk to my parents, they will say, well, everything's cheaper on Amazon. Um, I'm like, well, not necessarily, Ma. Why is my mom maybe not getting the full story? So there's any number of things that you know I think about in response to that question. You know, One is that actually there's a certain amount of evidence that Amazon isn't cheaper and that it's curtailing our choices. You know, we can go down that road and talk about what some of that is, but there's, there's a difference between perception and reality when it comes to pricing. And this is a company that alters its pricing through algorithms millions of times a day. And so if you actually monitor Amazon pricing, you see these huge spikes up and down, up and down. And so Presumably, they're taking advantage of moments and particular consumers, parts of the day, whatever it may be, and are able to get inflated prices at certain times because of that. Why else would their prices spike up and down like that? You know, so I think there are a lot of questions. I think that, you know, given Amazon's ability to manipulate behind the scenes all kinds of things to steer us to its products over other products that may have much higher consumer ratings, I think since we know that, we should also have like an idea of skepticism when it comes to the notion that they're serving us in other ways, like that they're lower priced. So that's the sort of to take the consumer piece kind of head on in regard to price. But the other couple of things I would say is that we're not just consumers. We've been trained now by a sort of ideology, if you will, for the last 30 or 40 years to think of ourselves, our primary role as actors in the world as consumers. But we're also people who need to earn a living and we're members of a community. We want to live in a healthy, vibrant place and we're citizens of a democracy. And on all three of those fronts, there is clear and compelling evidence that Amazon is damaging and harmful to our interests, that it is making it harder and harder for us to earn a living by pushing down wages, driving out businesses, consolidating the economy. It has become more and more difficult to earn a living that it is undermining the health and well-being of our communities in countless ways, and that its power represents a direct threat to democracy, both its power over government and also its power as an entity that, that essentially runs a lot of our markets. Like we've handed over control of our markets to Amazon. So I think we should be very you know, wary uh, of that. And And I guess the last couple of parts of your question, I know this is sort of a long answer, but there's a lot packed into that. And so I kind of wanted to take each piece, but this idea that, well, those, those firms that, that uh, Amazon is, is investing in and then spying on and stealing, well, they could just sort of access the courts and so on. It's like, okay, to an extent, but have you ever, have you ever tried to sue a company like Amazon? I mean, it also kind of gets into this territory of it's like, well, why don't we actually just 
uh, resurrect our antitrust laws. You know, if the goal is to have a fair playing field, why use the courts to do that when we can, you know, or why use the courts through uh, private lawsuits to do that when we can just do that up front through actually, you know, enforcing uh, laws that should be preventing this kind of anti-competitive behavior, but for various reasons, you know, have really, really been dormant. I know you testified in Congress, and I know there have been in the House in particular, basically investigations into the power of big tech. It feels like that has been, and I don't want to step too far out of line, but it feels like at that level, it's maybe not been as bipartisan a conversation as, as I think people who are more local oriented would like it to be. The maybe entrance into this has seemed to me to be the conversation of how much of Amazon and these big tech companies are now assisting law enforcement, spy agencies, other branches of government that I think maybe conservatives historically have had more concern with or have had some concern with in terms of a deep state or a, a Orwellian government or what have you. Can you talk just a little bit about that aspect, that the, the kind of intermingling of these large tech companies and a big centralized government and, and, and the kind of concerns that that just naturally raises? Yeah, I find it really scary. We're in a, we're in a situation now where there is no prospect of a company that can come, on, come along and actually challenge Amazon's market power in any of the major areas where, where it exists. It's just not possible. They have too much of a built-in advantage in terms of data, market power, ability to use these kinds of anti-competitive practices to, to keep an, an upstart rival, uh, crush them, uh, prevent them from competing. So they have this kind of absolute dominance. And the only thing that can potentially interfere with that and restore some openness and fairness to our online markets would be intervention by government. And, you know, Amazon very much knows that this is its only competitive threat. And we know that it knows this by just watching where Jeff Bezos spends his time and right. puts his energy. We talked about HQ2. Of course, you know, wh where did they choose? They chose the nation's capital. You know, they're building their next headquarters right outside of Washington, D.C., just across the line in Virginia, expecting to have about 25,000, you know, HQ employees there. Incredible, like, soft power that gives you in terms of the networks, the fact that your kids go to school with the kids of all these people in government and that you're, you know, at the little league game with those folks. I mean, that's really incredible power. Bezos has bought the largest private mansion in DC and had it renovated. Uh, he had his first party right before COVID back in, I think, February or January. And it was a who's who of on both Democrats and Republicans, uh, media figures, you know, high-powered journalists were there, uh, actors, you know, all these people. It has the place has this enormous ballroom. I mean, it's as though it is designed for the lords and ladies of Washington D.C. to go have their audience with the king, who is Jeff Bezos. I mean, I just I feel like our founding fathers and mothers would be like, you know, rolling over in their graves at the thought of this marrying of financial and economic power with with government. You know, and to, to your point, you know, it's, it's this kind of influence over government and presence in the nation's capital. And then it's this just incredible number of contracts. Um, so Amazon for a number of years now has been the primary provider of cloud services for the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. 
They are uh, working to gain other big defense contracts so that they're, you know, essentially want to be the platform that houses government data, including our most sensitive data and information. And they're also working to really privatize procurement at all levels of government. So at the federal level, they've been, uh, you know, working really closely. They hired, at the end of the Obama administration, they hired his top government purchasing person, a woman named Ann Rung. And they have systematically gone through this process over the last few years where, you know, we're headed towards, it's a long process with a pilot and an RFP, and there are all these stages of it. But what we seem to be headed for at the federal level is a system where Amazon becomes a platform for all of the federal government's purchasing of goods, you know, all the office supplies, everything else. It's all pre-approved. It's all going to go through Amazon and they're doing that at the local and the state level as well. So there's this like um, fusion of Amazon's power in all ways with government and, you know, as well as this kind of weakening ability of government to actually uh, step in uh, and insist on putting a check on the private power that Amazon has. I think sometimes people who, and I'll include me in this group, have an awakening where they look and they're like, okay, the things that I care about in terms of the competitive landscape, Amazon is now undermining that. Facebook, Mm -hmm. Apple, Google are now undermining that. These things are, entities are anti-competitive in a way that I can see damages entrepreneurship, small business formation, new upstarts, new market entrants, pricing, wages. I'm on board. But I can't imagine a world without them now. I can't imagine what it would look like to break them up or what it would look like to transition beyond them. Can you take us a little bit to that world? Like what, what would it look like? Let's maybe just focus on Amazon. What would it look like to actually break up Amazon and make it a friendly corporation that facilitated marketplaces as opposed to one that suppressed markets? Yeah, it would be great. We'd all benefit from it, um, you know, because we would have everything that we sort of loved about Amazon, um, but in a new world where it became possible for businesses to have a fair chance uh, online and where other companies with new ideas could come along and and be the next Amazon, be the thing that can, had a new idea and changed how everything worked. You know, right now that's not going to happen because of the power of these handful of dominant uh, tech firms. You know, in the case of Amazon, you know, what the House Antitrust Subcommittee has recommended, and this, I just have to say, this investigation is really one of the most extraordinary and important things that is happening right now. It not only has offered a really compelling look at the market power of these companies and a really compelling set of recommendations. But in the process of doing this investigation, which, which was bipartisan, we should come back to that um, and talk a little bit about the Republican role in that investigation. But in doing that investigation, they, this committee has illustrated, like, what does government look like when it actually works, when it uses its powers of investigation, which it hasn't done in, with, with regard to monopoly in almost 50 years, when it, when it uses those powers to look deeply at a really troubling set of problems, have a shared set of facts, and then work on coming up with a set of solutions. Like we, we don't see, government hasn't been working for so long that we forget that it can do that. And so I find this investigation and its result to be just really heartening. And I want to make sure every member of Congress knows that people are watching this and um, and wants them to do something about that. So they called for for, uh, a number of solutions, but in terms of breaking up Amazon, 
And the thing to do really is to look at where there are conflicts of interest. So if you're the infrastructure, the rails, if you will, that other businesses need, you shouldn't be allowed to then compete with those businesses on that same infrastructure. So one split that would occur is that Amazon, the online marketplace, would become a separate standalone company from Amazon Retail, the retailer and seller of private label products. So Amazon now is a separate company. It can sell on Amazon Marketplace just as anyone else can sell there under the same terms. But that marketplace doesn't have any reason to favor Amazon over any of the other companies that are there. So you you begin to get towards a, a level playing field. The other splits that I would make is I would, you know, again, sort of coming back to this idea of conflicts of interest and where you get leveraging of Amazon's power in one area to gain power in another is to spin off the logistics and shipping operation as a separate standalone company because having that attached to the marketplace means that it doesn't actually have to compete. Like if you, in order to be successful in the marketplace, you have to use that shipping service, even if it's higher price and worse off than UPS, which many sellers say that it is, but you have to use it. You know, it gets to win not by competing on the merits, but simply by having a lot of power. So spin off the shipping. We'll now have a new competitor to UPS and FedEx and the Postal Service called Amazon Shipping. Um, And then also spin off the cloud services. So AWS should be a standalone company for many of the same reasons and and also because AWS is a cash cow. So part of how Amazon can do things like predatory pricing where it goes into a sector and just sells everything at a loss um, in order to take market share and push out smaller businesses that can't sell at a loss. Part of how it engages that is that it has this huge stream of cash coming in through AWS. So if you spin that off, um, now you have a separate company there, again, can compete with other cloud providers without this sort of intertangled mess. And I think with regard to the shopping platform, you imagine that as a standalone company, and we maybe also step in and, and apply some rules where we essentially say you're a common carrier. You know, you're like a railroad or, a, you know, in the old days, common carrier comes from old, you know, common law when you'd have like a ferry service that ran across a river and everyone needed to use that. And there was this idea of like, you can't discriminate. You can't charge one person or say, sorry, you can't use this. We need to, this is a common carrier. It needs to be available to everyone. So we think about the marketplace that way and we set some rules around, you know, you need to, to have fair dealing with all the companies that rely on this infrastructure. And we could imagine multiple platforms then being able to spring up. And so now if you don't really like dealing with Amazon as a consumer or as a seller, you can go somewhere else. There are other options in the marketplace. Yeah. It's one of these things where I think because we've slowly evolved into where we're at now, it's hard to get your mind around. But the reality is, is it would be a world that you would still have... I think some people think, well, I'm not going to be able to order things on my phone anymore. I'm not going to be able to get things delivered to my house anymore. And it would be the exact opposite of, of that situation. You actually have more options to do all those things if that's what you wanted. Totally. And, and it's important to know we've done this before. Like we've forgotten because it's been, you know, it's not happened in most of our lifetimes because antitrust has been dormant. But we did this a lot in the 20th century and 
often with, you know, all, actually really always with really great results, like breaking up Standard Oil generated a ton of new companies and was really good for the economy, you know. Same thing when we went after AT&T, you know, I keep referring to the railroads, but that's what we did in, in 1906 is we said to the railroads, uh, if you want to be a railroad, fine, but you can't also have cross ownership in you know commodities and things that need to move on the rails and that didn't mean we didn't that we like went backwards on having railroads you know we right. only went ahead with that technology it just right. meant that you didn't have you know a handful of people controlling that for their own interests let me ask you uh, just as a last question you you mentioned the bipartisan nature mm-hmm. of the conversation we, we're recording this just slightly before the election in november this is going to run after the election so we we don't know the results of that or what is going to happen can you just talk about a little bit delve into that bipartisan nature of this area of concern at least we may not agree on you know across all political spectrums on exactly what should be done but it seems to me like there is a growing bipartisan consensus that there are are at least problems here that need to be addressed. Is that fair? It's totally true. And to your point about there's a sort of a freedom to compete and the fate of small and mid-sized, you know, and even large businesses because of the power of these digital gatekeepers. I mean, there are lots of ways in which both conservative and, and liberal values are at odds with the power of Amazon, Facebook, and Google. You know, in the case of the House investigation, um, this was a bipartisan investigation, and it, it was really interesting to watch both folks on the left and the right who did not go into this investigation, who are on the committee, who did not go into this investigation necessarily sharing any of these concerns. But the process of, of you know, the staff interviewing hundreds of witnesses, going through millions of documents, holding all of these hearings, like really doing an in-depth study of these issues how much alignment there was across the board around the fact that this is a problem and a great deal of alignment on what the solution should be. So the report that came out was because of timing around Congress is considered a staff report. They will vote on it at some point, and so we'll actually have a committee vote. But for the moment, it's a staff report, meaning it came from the majority, which in this case is the Democrats. But a group of four Republicans on the subcommittee issued their own concurrent report. Um, They called it the third way. And they're not totally on board with all of the same solutions, um, but they're on board with a lot of them. And the report says, you know, like in the case of Amazon, it says that Amazon's business model is, quote, fundamentally anti-competitive. Fundamentally anti-competitive. Well, that's That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're essentially saying we need a fundamental change (laughs) here. Right. That feels like a good starting point. Stacey Mitchell, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. You're so eloquent. You are so patient, I feel like, with me sometimes, too, because uh, I have loved your work from the beginning, uh, but I think on the Amazon stuff in particular, I've been a, uh, a longer upsell on it, but I, I've moved more towards your uh, point of view, and I think it's because of your persistence and your eloquence. So thank you for that. How do people follow you? I follow you on Twitter, which is great. How could people get a hold of you? What's the best way to follow your work? Yeah, so Twitter is great at Stacy F. Mitchell. Our organization website is ilsr.org or just search for Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And then from there, if you click on the independent business program, um, sign up for our Hometown Advantage newsletter, which is hometownadvantage.org. 
that's a great way to stay in touch with both our Amazon work. And, and we didn't chat much about this today, but we've been doing a ton of work um, helping communities strengthen and you know, help small businesses weather the pandemic and you know, figure out how to be more oriented to small businesses going forward. We have to have an additional discussion at some point in the future on that work because that is uh, equally and perhaps even more important than the uh, than what we've even chatted about today. So let's do that. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be great. Um, Stacy Mitchell, thanks for being on the podcast and thanks for listening, everybody. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.